I want to ask you this morning to find uh, Matthew chapter 2 in your copy of the scripture. I've told you past few weeks that this Christmas season, I'm, my plan is just to preach the customary, traditional narratives that you and I have heard probably a hundred times throughout our life. And uh, I love these stories. These stories that celebrate the incarnation of Christ. That God condescended to us and came to our world yet without sin. And he went to the cross and died for us. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Wonderful narratives of his birth. We're going to look this morning at what is without a doubt probably, if you were to say, Pastor, what is your favorite Christmas narrative? I love talking about the Magi and the visit of the Magi that we find here in Matthew chapter 2. Now I want to ask something of you this morning as I preach. uh, I've just had a heavy heart about this message 1.30, 1.40 this morning, going over this message again. Uh, Praying for the guys that were at my table yesterday also. Uh, Melvin uh, Whitlow and Phil Real and Michael Mooney and Jerry Zook. Uh, 1.40 this morning, praying for those guys and also a heavy heart for this message. Unless you just have to get up and leave, um, stay with me to the end. And uh, pray. Pray for your neighbor next to you. Pray for yourself. What is God saying to you and me through this text? These three different responses that we see in this text of Scripture this morning. I would assume probably all three are represented here this morning. You'd wonder about one of them. But that one could also be represented here as well. I want us to look this morning at the subject matter, wise men do indeed seek the Lord. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each heart. Use this message. Lord, I pray for that one this morning who needs Christ. That they would surrender their heart. And they would follow you. That you would change their lives eternally. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter 10. The queen of Sheba visits David's son Solomon. You remember that story. It says, now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. She concluded, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He's made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now folks, here was a Gentile ruler, the queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon who was the son of David. As R.T. Franz points out in his commentary on Matthew, we need to understand the connection with what is going on here. Because the Bible says of the Messiah that he will be the son of David according to his human lineage. And just as a Gentile ruler came to see Solomon when he was made king, Matthew 2 tells us about these Gentile wise men who were rulers in their own right and they came to see the one prophesied about who is the true son of David. 
And so the queen of Sheba came to see a son of David. These wise men came to see the son of David. And this is all taking place in fulfillment of passages like Isaiah 60 that says the nations will come seeking the Lord. Folks, there's a great deal taking place in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is unquestionably presenting Jesus Christ as the true son of David and the king of kings. Now he started that back in chapter 1 with the genealogy and it now continues right through chapter 2. Jesus Christ is being presented as the true King of kings and Lord of lords, and as the one who is the true son of David. And as such, he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our service. We see the magi, the kingmakers, as they were often thought of, coming not to make Jesus king, but to recognize that he's already king. God's made him king. And so they come to worship him and they come to present their gifts to him. Now, there are a couple of very fascinating and even tragic contrasts that are being pointed out here. On the one hand, there is Herod. Herod is the illegitimate king, as I will describe in a moment. He's the illegitimate king, and the one who is the illegitimate king is trying to put to death the one who is the legitimate king. And then there are these Gentile kingmakers. They've made a long and exhausting journey to see the true king when Jesus' own people, even the religious leaders, seem to care less. They don't appear to be the least bit interested. These wise men have traveled from perhaps hundreds if not thousands of miles away over not just days but weeks and months when the religious crowd in Jerusalem is not even willing to go six miles down to Bethlehem to investigate. But in pointing out these unusual and surprising contrasts, Matthew is showing the surprising reactions to the birth of Jesus Christ. Things are definitely not always as you would expect. And these same reactions occur today. As I mentioned a moment ago, perhaps in this very room this morning, But what we're going to see is that there is only one fitting response to the announcement of the birth of the Lord Jesus. Now let's start this morning with the correct response. At Christmas time, we are reminded that there is sincere worship of Jesus Christ. There is sincere worship of Jesus Christ. Read with me again verses 1 and 2 where it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. 
Here are mighty men. Here are wealthy men. Here are influential men coming to worship the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, you know, I think about something the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. But yet, folks, that does not mean that there are none among the noble who seek after Jesus. Because in the birth narratives, we see the wise, the noble, the influential seeking after Jesus. That's the wonderful thing about the life of Christ. In Luke's gospel, we see the lowly seeking after Jesus. We see shepherds and women, two groups of people that they would not even allow to testify in their law courts. We see the outcast. We see publicans and, 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 and prostitutes and the downcast of society seeking after Jesus. And Luke certainly points that out, the lowly. Here in Matthew's gospel, we see the wise men seeking him. They were men of nobility. It simply points out the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the world. He's for the poor, the rich, the black, the white, the Jew, the Gentile, the male, the female, the weak, the powerful. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now there are a couple of things about our text this morning that have been the subject of a great deal of discussion and speculation. First off, who are the wise men? Who were they? And how many of them were there? Magi, the word here, great or powerful ones. The Magi first appear in history in the 7th century B.C. as a tribe within the Median nation of eastern Mesopotamia. It may also be that like Abraham, the Magi came from ancient Ur of Chaldea. Now the name Magi soon came to be associated strictly with the priesthood within that tribe. And they became skilled in astrology and in astronomy. They were involved in various occult practices. Including sorcery. And were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. It's from their name that our words magic and magician are derived. And because of their combined knowledge of science, agriculture, mathematics, history of, uh, and the occult. Their religious and their political influence continued to grow until they became the most prominent and the most powerful group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire and also even the, the Babylonian Empire. The Magi were often simply referred to as the wise men. No Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the disciplines of the Magi and then being approved and crowned by the Magi. And so they came to be known as the king makers. 
Now we learn from the book of Daniel that they were among the highest ranking officials in Babylon because of God's blessings on Daniel's life. Even though Daniel was not a magi, he was placed over all of the wise men of Babylon including the magi and Daniel became greatly respected. Now it seems certain that the magi had learned a great deal about the true and the living God from Daniel. Now, we have no idea how many of them there were. Traditionally, we say three because they come presenting these three gifts. But keep in mind, it just says three gifts. I hate to mess up your manger scenes at home, as I've told you before, but there were probably a lot more than three of them. I mean, this would have been a large caravan of wise men, of magi coming from the east. It wasn't just three lone figures. It would have been probably a a sizable caravan who, who are coming into Jerusalem, and it's such a big caravan of these important men from the east. No wonder it causes such a stir. Now another point of curiosity in the text is the star. Some, those who tend to be more liberal, want to assign just naturalistic answers to this star. They want to say it was just a comet. That was the view of one of the early church fathers, Origen of Alexandria. Johann Kepler, the father of modern astronomy, explained it as the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and the constellation of Pisces in the year 7 BC. But that would probably be too early though. Folks, I don't take any of these naturalistic explanations as the answer though. I take this to have been a miraculous phenomenon. It was the Shekinah glory of God, the same Shekinah glory of God that had followed the children of Israel through their desert wanderings. Only something like the Shekinah glory of God could have led these wise men over the desert to Jerusalem, reappeared after their meeting with Herod, guided them to Bethlehem, and then stopped over the place where the child was. A comet or a star doesn't act that way. But again, what is it that Matthew wants us to say? Matthew is interested in showing how influential Gentiles came to seek Jesus when his own people had the audacity to reject him and to ignore him. Not what you would expect. The group of people who you would expect to worship him don't. The group of people that you would expect wouldn't do. Surprising? You bet. And it still happens today, doesn't it? Well... What do we see here? We see their humility. Here they were, magi in their own country. They were the ones to whom people went for information. And yet here they are like children seeking to know the truth. They're looking for Jesus. 
We also see their wisdom. They were wise enough to seek Jesus. Somehow God had made the birth of Jesus known to them. And the result was they went in search of Jesus. The question is, are you and I wise enough to do the same? We have, we have a more reliable guide. We have the scripture through the pages of the Bible. You and I can know about the birth of the Messiah. There's no mystery about it. And so have you found him? Have you discovered him? And if not, are you still seeking A common saying asserts wise men still seek him. Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13 says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it in order to suggest the real thing. Here were men seeking, they were hungry. There was something missing in their lives and they knew it. They found out about Christ through the scriptures when the, when the religious leaders who themselves weren't interested read Micah 5.2 to them. Folks, again, it's in the Bible that we learn about Jesus. These wise men had to travel a great distance to find Jesus. But nobody has to travel a great distance today. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, but the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart who will ascend up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we're preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved Christ is near you do you see that you can learn everything that you need to know about Jesus Christ from the Bible that is laying on your lap right now Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that the scriptures are enough to make us wise unto salvation that is in Jesus Christ. The scriptures. 
If you're lost, simply crack open your Bible this Christmas season and begin reading your Bible. I would suggest you begin in the Gospels. And as you begin, say, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I'm praying that you would open my eyes and open my ears and open my heart that I might see wonderful things from your word and that I might learn about who your son is. Make that your prayer. And you know what? If you open up the scriptures and you're honest with God and you pray and the Holy Spirit directs you, guess what the Holy Spirit's going to do? He's going to lead you to the foot of the cross. He's found in the scriptures. Well, not only is there sincere worship... But also at Christmas time, we are reminded that there is surprising opposition to Jesus Christ. Surprising opposition. Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Look down at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then again in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sinned and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men Herod is the perfect snapshot of all of those down through history who remain in opposition to Jesus Christ now who exactly was this particular Herod you see there's a number of Herods in the Bible this Herod right here is known as the one who is Herod the Great. Julius Caesar had appointed his father Antipater to be the governor of Judea. And then Antipater had managed to have his son Herod appointed prefect of Galilee. Herod went to Rome in 40 BC and petitioned the Roman Senate to be made king of the Jews. And he was declared by Octavian and Antony to be so. He invaded Palestine the next year and after several years of fighting he drove out the Parthians and he established his kingdom. He wasn't Jewish. He was an Edomite. Probably to help his image in regard to this he married uh, Miriam. She was a descendant of the famous Maccabeans, the family who led the charge in the Maccabean revolt who were larger than life heroes to the Jewish people. She was heiress to the Jewish Hasmonean house. Now by marrying her, Herod no doubt was trying to make himself more palatable to the Jewish people. He was a clever guy. He was a capable warrior. But he was also a madman. He was cruel and he was without any mercy. He was incredibly jealous and afraid for his position and his power. His wife's brother was uh, Aristobulus, the high priest. Herod had him drowned 
and then threw an incredibly magnificent funeral and pretended to weep his eyes out. He then had Miriam uh, murdered, whom people say was his favorite wife. And he had her murdered. Could you imagine if you weren't his favorite? (sighs) He then murdered his mother-in-law. In addition to that, he killed two of his own sons. And five days before his own death, he had his third son murdered. Finally, so that there would be mourning and sadness in Jerusalem on the day that he died, he had all of the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem gathered up and put in prison. And he gave instructions that when it was learned that he had died, all of these prominent citizens, they were to be murdered so that on the day of his death, there would be sadness and weeping and mourning in the city of Jerusalem. And so as you can see, Herod was a wicked man. He was insanely jealous and he was paranoid of anybody who would threaten his power. He tolerated no rivals. He tolerated no one who could even be perceived to be a rival. And so when the wise men came and said to him, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? No doubt that would have enraged Herod. The wise men said, We've come to worship him. Herod, we're not coming to pay homage to you. We're coming to pay homage to him. This would have enraged Herod. Again, isn't that the way some are today? Now, I know it's not the same type of hostility. It's not the same motives. But yet, nonetheless, there are still people today that are hostile to Jesus Christ. And by no means are they going to bow the knee to Jesus and surrender their lives to him. They don't want anything to do with him. You bring him up in a conversation and they get angry. In 1 John chapter 1 we read the words, And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. That word comprehend means to overcome. And so the light shines in the darkness. The darkness tries to extinguish it, but the darkness cannot extinguish it. Now, folks, as surprising as it may seem to you all over the world, there are those who reject Jesus Christ. And if they could have their way, uh, they would push him totally out of the picture. And what is even more strange is that it's not enough that they themselves don't believe. They take great offense that you and I believe. What's going on? It's a spiritual battle. Darkness is trying to push back the light, but thank God it will never be able to do so. Just read the end of the Bible. Jesus wins. Philippians 2.11 says there's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
But for now, all over the world, Herod sadly has his descendants. There are people in fierce opposition to Jesus Christ. And so we have sincere worship. We have surprising opposition. And the two are polar opposites. But right in the middle, there's a third response. At Christmas time, we're reminded that there is stunning indifference. Stunning indifference to Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 3 through 6. In verses 3 through 6, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Stunning indifference. Now folks, regardless of what we've just said about Herod and Herod's kind, this right here might be the most dangerous and troubling response of all. Indifference. The very people who should have cared didn't care. I think we're supposed to read that in the text and we're to be shocked as we read that in the text. The very people who should have cared didn't seem to care. Now representing this crowd we see the chief priest. First among the chief priest was the high priest. According to the Old Testament law there was to be but one high priest at a time who served for life and whose special duty was to enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer sacrifice for all the people. By the time of Christ, the office of the high priest had become subject to political favoritism and even purchase. High priests were appointed and removed at the whim of different rulers and consequently there were often several living at one time. Now the ruling high priest also presided over the Sanhedrin, a type of combined senate and supreme court if you will. Another of the chief priests was the captain of the temple. He was appointed by the high priest and accountable to him. And he was given the power to arrest and imprison. Consequently, he was allowed to have a rather large contingent of soldiers, all Jewish at his disposal. They acted as the temple police. And then you had the priest who acted as the temple treasurer. Finally, among the chief priests, you had those priests who were in charge of all the other priests. And so the high priest, the captain of the temple, the temple treasurer, the priestly supervisors all made up what is referred to here as the chief priest. Now generally they were Sadducees as opposed to Pharisees. By the time of Jesus they become little more than a group of corrupt religiously oriented politicians. We also see the scribes mentioned here. The scribes were primarily 
Pharisees. They were the authorities in the Jewish law. Both laws that came from the scripture and laws that came from their traditions. Their oral traditions. They were recognized as the key scholars of Judaism. They tended to be very conservative theologically. But they also tended to be very legalistic. Those who were Sadducees among them tended to be very liberal on the other hand. And they even denied such fundamental doctrines as the resurrection. And so these groups were always fighting among themselves. Now folks, it was this group that Herod summons together. And the Bible says that Herod and all Jerusalem was troubled. In other words, this was the gossip on the streets. The wise men, the kingmakers from the east, this large caravan has ridden into town and everybody is troubled. You know why they're troubled? Because again, what I've told you, they know what Herod is capable of any time Herod feels threatened. Now the striking thing to me is that here are these magi from the east. And here is Herod calls together the council of the chief priests and the scribes to inquire about the location where the Messiah is to be born. And here's the whole town that is troubled and yet... No one, no one but the Magi go down to Bethlehem to investigate. Here the chief priests and the scribes, they know all the answers and here are people that are troubled. They know the scripture too and nobody seems to care. As D.A. Carson points out, the tense, even the tense used in verse 5 is significant. It stands written, the tense shows that they accept the words by the prophet Micah about Bethlehem. It stands written. It's not that they have any doubts about the legitimacy of of the prophecy they fully accept Micah's words as the authoritative word of God as prophecy from the Old Testament and yet they don't care enough to go and investigate Herod doesn't seem he, he doesn't uh, send people to go with these wise men because he's confident that he's duped this whole bunch and he doesn't want to tip them off to his motives. Folks, I, I, I find this text utterly astonishing. The birth of the Messiah would have been the best news that they'd ever heard. It's what they had been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's what their prophets had talked about. They know where he's to be born. These wise men come from the east looking for him and they don't even seem to care. For some reason or another, they've just become apathetic. They're like people today who know all the answers. They just don't care. They're all too familiar with the Christmas story. But all it produces is a collective yawn. They know the Bible. They know about Jesus. They know what it says about salvation. Sometimes you even meet them in church. They can be religious folks like these chief priests. 
But you know what? Life is good. Why upset the apple cart? Why change things? Just put in the appearance of religion and then go on and do your own thing. That's exactly what Michael Mooney was talking about yesterday at the men's breakfast and workday as he, as he gave the devotion. He was baptized at age 12, but he said he was unchanged. He went through all the right motions. He quote unquote said the prayer, made a public profession of faith, did all the right things at all the right time. But deep down in his heart, he was unconverted. Folks, can I help you to understand something, please? Just because you pray the sinner's prayer does not mean that you are born again. Okay? Have you been born from above? Have you come spiritually alive? We, we reduce this, as I told you last week, this wonderful, rich, biblical doctrine of the new birth, of convert, conversion, regeneration. We reduce it down to just, have you said a little prayer at the end of a track and have you come down front and filled out a commitment card? But the Bible says, have you been born again? Have you come alive to God and come alive to the things of God? And you look back in your life and you can see that change. Now, of course, it's more dramatic for some than others, but nonetheless, it's there. Michael said it wasn't until 1995 he found himself laying on his face before God broken. And he said, oh, God, save me. And changed me. And he said, that's when I was born again. There are indifferent people to, indifferent people to Jesus all around us today. They just don't want to be bothered. They don't want to be inconvenienced. You know, it reminds me of that bunch that Jesus addressed at the church of Laodicea. Remember the church at Laodicea? Hey, we're rich. We don't, we don't need anything. We're quite comfortable the way we are. And Jesus said, do you not see that you are blind and naked and lost? Are you indifferent today? We don't mind religion. We just don't want to be inconvenienced. Don't get me out of my comfort zone to where I actually have to deny myself and pick up my cross and follow Christ. And there's got to be radical change in my life. Don't talk to me about that. Just let me go to church and go home. I was listening some time ago to Dr. Michael Reeves, who's a theologian and professor at Oxford University in England. Wonderful, wonderful professor. Noted uh, authority on the Puritans. Now, as Dr. Reeves pointed out in the lecture, you've got to keep in mind the context of what he was about to say. Because if you miss that, you're going to misunderstand. Okay? The context was that Europe 
had been without the Bible in their language for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then after William Tyndale and the printing press and all that, they suddenly had the Bible in their language. They were so hungry. Sometimes the sermons of the Puritans in church would go on for up to seven hours. You don't have it so bad. (laughs) On one occasion, he says, there was a leading Puritan that had noticed that two hours had gone by in his sermon. He didn't know where time had gone. He just got so caught up in his mess, he didn't know where time had gone. He stopped and apologized to the congregation and they responded, For God's sake, sir, go on, go on, please go on. Keep preaching the word. They had been without. And they were blown away that they finally had it. Could it be that our familiarity with the Bible and the things of God has caused us in some ways to be like the religious leaders here in Matthew 2? Speaking of the Puritans again, they once said about the risk of losing their Bibles and the ability to worship God. They said, and some of you aren't going to understand what they said, but they said, you can kill our children. You can burn our houses down. You can steal our fields and our farms and our businesses. You can do anything that you want to our lives. Just please do not take away our Bibles. Wow. Such zeal and passion. Is there any of that in us today? Or do the things of God just again produce a collective yawn? Like, like, like the religious leaders, we know the scripture. We know what it says. We read it. We hear it. And we're kind of like, yeah, okay. We just don't want to be bothered. I think of the excuses in Luke chapter 14, those who were invited to the banquet. One says, oh, I bought a field, I can't come. Another says, oh, I've married a wife, I can't come. Another says, oh, I, 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 bought, I bought oxen and I can't come. And the master said, none of those who made those excuses will be at my banquet. Wow. Folks, you cannot stand nicely on the sidelines of who Jesus is and what he's done. You can't stand on the sidelines and be indifferent to him and think that you're born again. You've got to be transformed by him. You can be nice You can be religious. You can be polite. And you can still be as lost as the vilest sinner on the face of the earth. 
You simply cannot be indifferent to Jesus Christ. Look at the gifts they brought him. I'm going to wrap up. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Folks, this, I wish I had time to just preach on these gifts. Such a big deal here. Gold was an appropriate gift for Jesus Christ. Gold is the medal of kings. In the ancient world, when tombs have been uncovered and there's gold in it, generally we think that's some very important person, some king or emperor or something. Incense was another gift. That's symbolic as well. Incense was used in temple worship. Incense gave the offering a pleasant odor. Now, interesting to note is the fact that incense was never used in sin offerings. Only the meal offerings, which were not for sin, contained incense. When we remember that, we naturally think of Jesus to whom incense was given. He was without sin. Then there's myrrh. Myrrh was used in embalming. Now by any human measure, I think it would be odd if not offensive to present a spice used for embalming at the birth of a child. But in this case, it wasn't offensive, nor was it odd. It was a gift of faith. William Barclay says it well. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for one that was to die. These were the gifts of the wise men. And even at the cradle of Christ, they foretold that he was to be the true king, the perfect high priest. And in the end, the supreme savior of men. Now the whole point of this story shows that here were Gentiles coming to seek the Lord in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. But they were seekers. It shows they were seekers. This Christmas, are you a seeker? When they found him, they yielded their best to him. Their best. Have you done that? Maybe this Christmas season you need to say, Father, I want to know you. I'm not aware that I've ever been born again. Lord, would you do that in my life? Would you change me by the power of your Holy Spirit? Remake me from the inside out. Offer to him your myrrh. Matthew 16, 24 says you've got to die to yourself. Let that be a symbol of you're dying to yourself and picking up your cross and following him. Next, come to Jesus with your incense. Worship, symbolizing worship. Offer yourself to him in worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're to be a living sacrifice. And then finally, give him your gold. The gold represents the best of who you are and and what you have. Lord, everything I am, everything, everything I own, everything I am is because of you. And so I give it back to you. Notice That these were changed men. They went out by another way. Another route. Symbolizing they were. They had become changed. Have you? Father speak to your people. Thank you for this wonderful and puzzling story.
Lord, this, this narrative that happened when your son became incarnate, the surprising responses. Lord, as I've indicated this morning, the biggest surprise is indifference with the religious crowd. That's the one that's a danger to me. And that's the one that's the danger to every person sitting here this morning. Indifference. Indifference to the greatest news of all. God, help us not to be indifferent. May we emulate the wise man. Lord, change us. And please receive from our hands and our hearts what we give to you. We give our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.